Government's proposals will mean that women can self-identify as men and vice versa and have their birth certificates altered accordingly. But critics have warned that the move could lead to legal challenges of access to women-only hospital wards, prisons, changing rooms and lavatories. Is this just another example of political correctness gone absolutely mad? And do people really get offended if you were to call somebody a she and they were, they were transgender or a he and if they were trans, would they really get offended? I know definitely when I was younger and you start going out to clubs and pubs and things, Toilets is where you congregate with your mates yeah. to reapply the lipstick, do the hair up a little bit before you go back out again. Have a gossip. I have a I've gossip. had some of my best nights in the loo. Yes! <laughs> and, and, and we go in there to get away from, from men. It's, yes. it's a safe place. It's your little sanctuary yes. for a few moments, isn't it? If you read mainstream media coverage of the issues facing transgender people in the UK, you'll see a lot of fevered discussion of pronouns, bathroom access, and confusing legislation like the Gender Recognition Act. The media tells one story, but the other side of the coin is that half of trans people in the UK are unemployed, and one in four have experienced direct healthcare discrimination. Many of us are cut off from our families. Many of us are unemployed. Many of us are homeless and we face violence in the street, we face harassment in the street. The NHS have admitted that trans people are a hidden and badly treated group. Treatment for trans people varies widely depending on where you were born and the access to the services that you have. 81% of trans women last year experienced harassment. Two out of five trans people have contemplated suicide. About 50% of all trans women are victims of domestic abuse. I mean, the statistics are so harrowing. When we focus on bathrooms and pronouns, what other conversations are shut down? What are the economic issues facing trans people today? And is trans liberation really a class issue? As someone that's a liberationist, I'm kind of like, well, let, let's, let's take the problem of trans people and look about how they expose a problem in the whole system. If we rectified healthcare inequality for trans people, and housing issues for trans people, for example, things like universal credit and how bad that is for a lot of people who are facing homelessness, you'd start to emancipate other groups too. This is it's a holistic view. It's about emancipating everyone from systems and structures rather than trying to seek equality with the people at the top of an already corrupt system. Welcome to the Weekly Economics Podcast. This week, we're asking, what would trans liberation look like? I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith, recording this podcast from my house, Stay with us. So this week, I'm really pleased to be joined down the line by dear comrade, Nim Ralph, community activist, writer, trainer and facilitator. Hi, Nim. Hey, great to be here. Thanks for having me. No, thank you so much for being with us. There's a lot to get through, but I'm going to try and be as systematic as possible. So let's see how we do. Some of our listeners who are not trans and might not know about trans politics might think that we're going to spend this episode talking about bathrooms and pronouns, like I said in my intro, because obviously when a lot of people hear about so-called trans issues in, in heavy air quotes in the media, they mostly hear about that kind of stuff. So for you, Nim, what are the real issues affecting the lives of trans people in the UK today? Yeah, I think that's a, it's a really great launching off point and a great question. And with the caveat that I would say, they're not entirely unimportant conversations, they're just not the conversations. And so in terms of what are the conversations, they're the conversations that are relevant for everybody. Housing, health, education, work, safety, violence. And it's just that trans people experience those things in a particular way, as you mentioned in the introduction, in terms of unemployment stats for trans people, in terms of domestic violence stats for trans people, etc. And not, I mean, I'm saying stats, but these aren't just stats, these are our real lives. So yeah, I would say it's about really coming down to those material conditions of the quality of our lives and our access to safety. We're going to talk more about that. And that's a really great kind of steer for the conversation. What feels important there is you kind of saying these things are in some ways distractions, but they are also important. So when we spend time talking about bathrooms and pronouns, I guess... What do you think the effect of that is? Like, what's the reason why the media and, and lots of people in, I guess, public discourse want us to be talking about bathrooms and pronouns and not these kind of more material issues? I think simply put, it's a combination of like the media class kind of being like, oh, here's this weird thing. Let's do an, a kind of interest story on it through to the kind of other end of the spectrum of much more nefarious kind of we can create a kind of moral quandary, moral panic around these things. These questions allow us to create 
ambiguous moral discussions. And that is a useful tool for distracting us from the material conditions of real people's lives. And that really is about trans people's material conditions, but it's part of a wider media tactic to stop us talking about all people's material conditions and get us into the weeds of other parts of a conversation that we end up distracted from the real things that matter in. Mm, That makes a lot of sense. So, so, and how does that discourse, I guess, affect trans communities? Like what are the conversations that happen off the back of these, I guess, impositions? It kind of feels to me like, do you end up in a situation where folks are feeling they're having to respond to these things in the media, or that's the only thing that they can be brought in to talk about, for example, and then finding it difficult to pivot to more strategic things? Is that something that plays out? Absolutely. I think actually one of the things that's really interesting from my perspective, having been in the kind of trans movement or trans movements in the UK, is really seeing a kind of evolution of the movement's responses to these situations. So absolutely, there is a period in time when people were requesting one trans person to be on a panel on big shows through to small shows to be the kind of balance in the so-called debate. And when they get there, the conversation would very quickly switch to one that they weren't told was going to happen, they weren't prepped for. And it was almost like they were just asked to sit in a chair to represent some kind of balance without actually there being any balance in the debate itself. And what's happened now is that, you know, most trans people, when being reached out to and asked to sit on panels, will do a lot of research about who else is on the panel, what's the topic of conversation. And we now see patterns with different programs and broadcasters that tell us whether or not that's a kind of going to be a hostile environment or a safe environment to actually have real discussion in. So that definitely plays out. And I think in terms of the other part of that question, you know, one of the things that's true is that when this became started to become really a kind of hot topic in the British mainstream press through four or five years ago with the opening up of the Gender Recognition Act reform, there wasn't a trans movement or movements or an organised trans movement at that time to respond to the situation that suddenly happened. So the, the ground under our feet of where trans people thought we were working towards our rights and our liberation suddenly shifted drastically. And it means that for the first couple of years, there was a lot of in trans individuals or very small trans groups very much trying to react to what was happening around us because the goalposts kept moving, the ground kept shifting, etc. And I think that that has had a long-lasting effect on both trans people and trans people in the movement in terms of burnout, exhaustion, uh, mental health issues and so on. That's obviously not a great place to start. But one of the things that's been heartening is I think there's been a real concerted effort in the last year or so across. I mean, there is now much more of a trans movement, which, number one, I think is a real success. And number two, there's been much more of a concerted effort to recognise when we're reacting and to think more about what is this movement for us, for ourselves, for each other, and not what is this movement in reaction to the things being said about us or done to us? Mm, that feels so important for so many movements, right? <laughs> like no, we're, like above and beyond the trans movements, it feels like a lesson for, for all of us. So we had to start there, unfortunately, get, get the media yeah. stuff out of the way. Thank you for entertaining us. Uh, now we can move on to the structural things, which is what we really want to talk about. So You've suggested that there are more, you know, structural and material issues affecting trans people in the UK. And this summer, we published an interview with you in the New Economic Scene, where you argued that trans liberation is a class issue. So I'd love you to say more about that. Yeah, I mean, I think really, in some ways, it's like, you know, we could finish this podcast in the next three minutes. (laughs) 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 As much as I think at the base of it, our material concerns are the same material concerns of all working class people uh, or people oppressed by class structures as I said before it's you know it's housing it's healthcare it's education it's work it's poverty it's violence whether we mean domestic violence or state violence these are really the, the material conditions that determine our lives and our lives outcomes and it's that trans people experience a combination of those things more acutely based on our experience as trans people and of course those of us who are trans and disabled, trans and black, trans and people of colour within that experience those even more acutely. And so would you say, this might be a bit of a dumb question, but would you say that those conditions are the same if, say, you're a trans, very, very wealthy person who doesn't identify as working class? I think that's a really interesting question in as much as yes and no, in that if we 
were to take, for example, and not to focus on her for too long, Caitlyn Jenner, an incredibly wealthy public trans figure, does she experience transphobia? Absolutely. The things that people still think it's okay to say about her in the press are phenomenally awful. Does she have the same material experience as most trans people? Absolutely not. So if we think about healthcare, for example, shifting from Caitlyn Jenner, who's obviously in the US, but in the UK, the NHS we know is chronically underfunded, has huge issues in providing care. I mean, you know, the NHS, God bless it. We love it. It's great. I'm so grateful for it. It's set up to respond to urgent emergency care much more than it is to chronic health conditions. And that's true for everybody. As trans people, it doesn't really serve us that well to put it bluntly. Um, Waiting lists for gender identity clinics are between two and five years. And that's if our GP even supports putting us on the waiting list at the point that we show up at our GP and asks to be put on it because lots of GPs don't really understand trans healthcare, trans people or our needs. So the trans healthcare system is in a crisis and you're kind of in a postcode lottery based on who your GP is and how supportive they are. And then a postcode lottery on top of that, depending on which gender identity clinic you live near and how you access it. There are, however, lots of options for private healthcare and private support available. That, of course, is a class issue in that not very many of us, you know, the stat that you read out at the beginning, 50% of trans people are unemployed. One in three employers said last year that they wouldn't hire a transgender person in one report. So uh, who can then afford that? And what we've now seen is a kind of explosion in crowdfunding for trans people to access different aspects of trans healthcare. Would a wealthy trans person experience that same material situation? No. Uh, and this leads us on to something else that I think we're going to talk about around kind of the trans rights agenda versus the trans liberation agenda, which is that it's exactly because of that that our goal shouldn't be greater representation. It should be liberation. Oh, brilliant. I mean, that makes it, yeah, it makes so much sense, but also so much of what you just said in there is shocking even to me as someone who likes to think of myself as like at least somewhat knowledgeable on how these issues are manifesting. So I want to circle back to talk about healthcare specifically in a minute, because it feels like there's so much more to unpack there, but let's pick up the thing that you were saying about work and, you know, the stat on one in three employers is absolutely mind boggling. So In terms of employment, what are the other issues, I guess, that manifest for trans people in kind of like accessing employment and being in the world of work? Yeah. And I mean, I feel like this is a huge question, as it is for any community in all communities, which is that trans people are represented in all kinds of uh, sectors and employment statuses. So, you know, building on the stats that we've just shared, half of transgender people in the UK are unemployed, one in three employers, so they wouldn't hire a trans person. That tends to push trans people into precarious work, into the gig economy, into sex work, into work that, how to phrase this, kind of avoids interaction with the public. And so if we add on to that the experience of transmigration, trans refugees and asylum seekers, etc., it's kind of hard to give a very generalist answer to this kind of question. But really it's to say it's the same and there are all these ways in which trans people are pushed into more unsafe work conditions than other communities. And I would say this is actually where the material context of issues like pronouns and bathrooms becomes relevant, because one of the reasons that trans people avoid public-facing work is because of the harassment at worst, um, or abuse at worst, I should say, through to just constant misgendering, othering in the workplace and questions about having a safe place to pee while you're at work, um, and these kinds of things. And so this is the area where I'd say materially, those issues which become such hot media topics and are abstracted from our actual lives do become relevant. But they're still, I would say, they're still the kind of secondary relevance to actually even getting a job in the first place and and, uh, where we find labour and how we find labour in the first place. Mm, So... Going on to talk about uh, another structural issue then, housing. How much are trans people able to access housing compared to the rest of the population? Are we seeing kind of similar discriminations and prejudices playing out in that space as there are in employment? Yeah, and to my knowledge, this is an area where there's far less stats in the UK specifically of trans people. I mean, it's hard to have, I should say it's hard to find robust, conclusive stats about trans people broadly because there's little interest in understanding our material conditions. And in homelessness, 
that for the trans community specifically, it's harder to find specific stats. What we do know is, for example, that 24% of the youth homeless population is made up of LGBT people. What we know from groups like the Albert Kennedy Trust or informally from, I can speak for myself, from my organising work from being connected in with trans communities is that absolutely trans people are overrepresented in homelessness experiences. There aren't very many stats that I can point to because there's just not that much research done on trans people. Mm, And that obviously is telling in and of itself. So what about exposure to violence, whether, you know, you've mentioned this a couple of times now, so whether that's violence within the home or in public or from the state, how are trans people affected by that? I'm assuming it's much more than folks who aren't trans. Yeah. So as an example, in 2018, 7.5% of women experienced domestic violence. And when you look into that stat, 16% of trans women experienced domestic violence. We have less stats around trans men and DV. Yeah. And I think in addition to that and stats, you know, I feel like it's important to share stats because they demonstrate that, you know, what we're saying about our lives is backed up. And I think sometimes people just don't, you know, it's not enough for trans people to say this is happening to us for wider populations to believe it. And so stats are helpful. But actually, I think one of the things that I would point to in terms of the experience that trans people face, particularly trans women and trans femme people, is that the domestic violence sector has become a site of some of the culture war that we've been talking about. And so there was a report last year by Gaudem, I think it was, where they investigated for a year the domestic violence sector and its um, behaviour towards trans people, particularly trans women. And I think the headline of the article was something like, if they sound like a man, just hang up. And that trans people are hugely discriminated against within the domestic violence sector. And when we're not actively discriminated against, there's very few services in the country that understand a uniquely trans experience and have services and support services specifically for a trans experience of gender-based violence. I mean, and it's a sector that's already you know, like the NHS, drastically underfunded. And I think a lot of this, when we unpack this and what's going on in that sector, you know, some of this is based in in a real transphobia. That's true. And I think there's a whole trance of it that, that is generated from a scarcity mentality, which is about the fact that since the austerity agenda came in, domestic violence services have had their budgets last year on year. We've lost huge numbers of domestic violence organisations and spaces up and down the country in the last decade and more. And it's a scarcity mentality based in a material reality of real scarcity. And, you know, workers really kind of fighting to maintain the services that they're running for people. And so, you know, to the question of like specialist services, it's hard to run in that situation specialist services for anybody. And unfortunately, some people become the scapegoat of that. And in a broader sense, it's it's hard to maintain all services for everybody. And I think then what happens is this kind of gatekeeping, border building mentality around the conditions of how much money do we have to serve anybody and therefore how do we kind of create these ideas about who should have most access and some of that's about who we understand and I think the thing that's sad about that is that what it does is recreate conversations and borders and boundaries around the idea of uh, womanhood around the idea of who experiences violence in ways that I think we can see parallels of in many different kind of liberation groups from black women to disabled women to working class women and beyond it's a kind of resetting up of the deserving and the undeserving. Mm, I mean, it definitely has so many parallels with other economic issues. As you were saying, I mean, when you were talking then, it made me think about some work that I'd done in a community outside of London where there was lots of tension around the local school and migrant children. And there was a campaign to bring kind of provisions in for migrant children who couldn't access a lot of the learning because they couldn't speak the language. And then a kind of counter campaign from parents being like, no, the money should be spent elsewhere. And when you actually kind of got down to the root of it, what it was is there wasn't enough money 
money to go around. And so you had some people saying, you need, we need another maths teacher because one maths teacher is trying to teach 50 kids and another person saying, well, we need a, you know, a TA who can speak Polish. And it became, as you say, a culture issue when actually it's a, it's an issue of manufactured economic scarcity, which is kind of designed to an extent to bring about some of these things as a distraction from the real issues. Exactly. Exactly that. Yeah, I mean, it, there's there's just so many parallels here. I want to go back to healthcare because it feels like there's more to unpack, especially in terms of you know what we're talking about at the moment, uh, underfunding, scarcity, and things like that. So we'll start off with a court case that some listeners might be aware of. So four transgender people are currently taking NHS England to court over the long waiting times for trans healthcare. So if someone is medically transitioning, what is the process that they have to go through to access appropriate healthcare on the NHS? I know you mentioned talking to the GP as a first instance, but what does that journey look like? Yeah, great question. So let me just unpack something first, which is that medical transition looks different for everybody. Okay. And so that is part of, I think, one of the things that is difficult with the NHS, which is that it's set up around a kind of process designed for one linear form of transition. Or I should say two, a binary, one for trans men and one for trans women, that not only do non-binary people, for example, not fit into, but actually most trans men and trans women don't necessarily fit into. So just to frame that around medical transition, it's not one thing, it's many things for different people. So the process would be that normally you would go to your GP, or ordinarily I should say you would go to your GP as the first point of call and you would tell them I'm transgender and be asked to put on a waiting list. Many GPs don't understand or haven't knowingly met other trans patients or perhaps have and have been dismissive and so haven't actually kind of engaged in this healthcare process. And so they often don't really know what they're doing and on an individual level can kind of Google it, look it up, which is, you know, fine, that's a GP's prerogative. They can't be experts on everything all the time and will pass you on to a service that they think is relevant. This often in and of itself leads to lots of issues. So, for example, when I first went to my GP, they referred me to the general endocrinologist at the local hospital instead of the transgender health service uh, or gender identity clinic. Another friend who went to their GP got referred to the children's gender identity clinic. And so from that very first moment, you have to be really proactive and on it in terms of knowing more about trans healthcare than your doctor does, which is different than, you know, our experiences of most other health conditions. We often go to the GP and say this thing's happening and we expect them to know more about it than we do. Then you get put on the waiting list if you want to, if once you finally get referred to the right place. And you have to look out for some kind of notification of confirmation that you're on the waiting list. Sometimes that doesn't come and you then have to proactively follow up and check where that referral has been dropped in the process. And if you don't know to look out for that, you can end up not on the waiting list and not knowing that first. You know, I've heard people who thought they were on it for two years and and then found out that the referral had actually never, never gone through. Once you're on the waiting list, you're literally just waiting. And so the waiting list times are in flux. And like I said earlier, depending on which clinic you've been referred to it changes depending on when you got onto the list it changes and it's just a waiting game meanwhile most people I mean to be honest myself and most other people I know had already crowdfunded and gone private for a bunch of things before this ever happened so I'm not actually sure in the official process NHS process where this lands because I didn't do it that way but for me accessing healthcare away from the NHS system because the waiting lists are so long I had to get a psychological assessment that gave me an official mental health diagnosis of transsexualism in order to access, even privately, any form of healthcare. And in that process, I had to demonstrate that I'd been living as trans for a number of years already. I had to answer questions about my sexual preferences, my sexual history, my mental health history, my family history, lots of really intrusive questions that to me have nothing really to do with my gender identity in order to get this mental health diagnosis from there to access healthcare. What happens in the meantime in all of this is that for most trans people we get so desperate for our transition in these waiting lines that we look for other solutions. So many trans people find ways to source hormones for example in the uh, so-called dark web on the internet or from different community group resources 
and are self-injecting or self-medicating away from the official healthcare system, which can obviously lead to health risks. You know, we don't always know where these hormones are coming from or these kinds of things. Wow. I mean, I mean, it sounds like it's incredibly difficult for trans people to access the care they need. And I'm wondering how much of that is down to intentional design or, you know, a part of this is about the people who are behind it, I guess, wanting to, in their minds, make sure that people are sure by making them wait all this time. And how much is it a result of the kind of scarcity and underfunding that we've been speaking about? Yeah, it's a bit of both. And actually, I'd point anybody who's interested in this towards Sean Fay's new book, The Transgender Issue. She has a whole chapter on healthcare. She has chapters on many things in there. And she really draws out in much more detail than I can do here the history of gender identity clinics. And I think one of the key things that she draws out there is that the practice of uh, gender identity clinics or the practice of kind of trans healthcare was built very much on the premise of us having to prove who we are for diagnosis. I'm sure I'm butchering her very (laughs) good researching and a better phrasing of it. And so this is a crisis of like the overall NHS underfunding. That's definitely true. But but there is also inbuilt to the system a need to be diagnosed and to prove who we are rather than, for example, in other healthcare systems where the model is one of informed consent and access to healthcare that keeps us healthy and alive rather than kind of diagnosis and pathologization. Yeah, could you unpack that a little bit? Because I'm not sure that I fully understand. So could you say a bit more about what informed consent is versus the experience of trans healthcare? Yeah, absolutely. So informed consent is how most of our healthcare in the UK operates, whether that's from reproductive healthcare like an abortion through to if you're having a surgery of any type, at some point in that process, somebody will say to you, here are the risks of this surgery, of this intervention. I went to the osteopath earlier in the week and they said it to me there. I need your informed consent. These are the risks of me treating you. Do you agree for me to proceed? And so it's the idea that as adults, we can consent to the things that are done to us in the healthcare system. And it's usually very simple to the point that often people don't later remember. They kind of have a vague memory of being asked, but they couldn't tell you the details of it. The system for trans healthcare, like I said, is that we have to prove to medical practitioners that we are trans enough. So as I said, I had to go for a psych assessment. Some people are made to go for two or three. And there's no consistency between these. So my health assessment, as I said, was asking lots of questions in depth about uh, my sexual behaviours, my sexual practices, my sexual preferences, etc. Other people are also forced to take physical examinations in that process for reasons that I think most of us don't really understand or know why that happens. And But of course, you feel at the whim of a medical practitioner to get the healthcare that you need. And in that process, we also have to prove things, like I said, uh, that we've been living socially as a trans person for at least two years. There's kind of all these hoops that we have to jump through. Further than that, if you want to actually change your legal gender, you actually have to create a kind of folder, a packet of evidence that you compile, that you post off to a panel of people that you don't know who they are, who essentially go through and will say yes or no, whether or not you've legally proved enough that you are transgender. And you have to pay for that process. The Gender Recognition Act reform did change how much you pay. So that's much cheaper now. But what that does is give you a letter that enables you to change your birth certificate. And you'd still have to pay to change your passport and your driving license and everything else on top of that. So in healthcare, we have to basically jump through the hoops of lots of psychs and other medical professionals before we'll ever get access to any hormone surgeries or other forms of healthcare, for example, for trans women, access to electrolysis machines. And even then, the funding that's available for that, or indeed, the toll that all of this process takes on our mental health and the process and and mental health support are limited and often rarely offered. Oh, my God. Thank you so much for taking us through that, Nim. It's really, I feel quite speechless, to be honest. Like, as I say, I kind of thought I knew, but I really didn't um, just how messed up it really is. A question that I have for you is around, you may not be able to answer it, but like, the people who are designing these systems, how would they describe their motivation? Because the only parallel that comes up for me is around voting rights for 
for example, like people of color in the States and how they put all these things in the way in order to disenfranchise people to stop them from voting because ultimately they just don't want them to vote. And obviously this is an incredibly different situation, but I'm just wondering, would the argument be the kind of paternalistic one, which is, you know, we want to make this as difficult as possible. So people really have to be sure that they know what they're doing or would they say, or would they kind of be more upfront and say, we don't really want people to be doing this. So we want to make it as difficult as possible. Like what is their motivation? What's their thinking? Or how do they defend it? (laughs) (laughs) Great question. And I think, again, there's no singular answer to that. And I think also what people will say has shifted in time based on what's a kind of more acceptable thing to say. So historically, people would definitely have said the latter. We're trying to deter people from this, I think, is fair to say. And I think at this point, it's really a very more paternalistic kind of, we just want to make sure you're really, really sure I mean, this is actually what and it's coming back to me now. I'd actually forgotten this, but it's one of the things that was said to me when I had to do my psych assessment is we need to check that this isn't coming from some kind of mental health issue. And so there is this kind of paternalistic, why would you be doing this? We want to check that it's not because you're a bit mad in a very pejorative sense. And I don't think that, you know, just to be clear, like I think that the systems of ableism and gender identity and racism are all tied together in the healthcare system. So I, just to be clear, I'm not endorsing this kind of like pejorative use of the term mad, but that that is the kind of paternalistic perspective, I think, on some of this. I think lots of people wouldn't necessarily say that out loud today. And many of the listeners might have heard of the Belvedere's Tavistock case that's happened in the last year. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. Could you uh, tell us about that a bit more detail and why it was important? Yeah, absolutely. So this was dealing specifically with, which we have, I haven't talked about today, adolescent trans healthcare, not adult healthcare. And so there's this position, if we look at like explicitly more transphobic narratives, that when you're an adult, you can do what you want. That's fine. <laughs> do what you want. We don't care but we need to protect the children, which is, of course, a rhetoric that we see used against lots of oppressed communities, whether that's refugees and migrants and asylum seekers, etc. You know, this kind of protect the women and the children narrative is really big. And one of the ways that that has instrumentally manifested is a case was taken to the court against the Tavistock Children's Gender Identity Clinic by an adult, Kira Bell, who was 23 at the time, who had gone through the service and had later had top surgery, I think, and um, access to hormones after over the age of 18. The case itself was about whether or not somebody under the age of, I think, 16 or 18 should have to have a court intervene in their request for puberty blockers, which is something just for people listening. Puberty blockers is given to young trans children who are very sure after a lengthy process with parental consent as well as their own consent through the children's gender identity clinic to prevent the onset of puberty until they're old enough to access hormones or surgeries and so it just it delays puberty there's no known negative consequences of this and that case really went to the heart of something called the Gillick competence that children under the age of 16 can consent to their own treatment if they're believed to have enough intelligence competence and understanding to fully appreciate what's involved in their treatment and otherwise somebody with parental responsibility can consent for them. So this is a principle that goes way beyond trans healthcare. That's uh, the Gillick competence in all NHS healthcare for children under the age of 16 years old. And so this case initially won, and what that meant was that all the trans children currently on the waiting list or in the services of the Tavistock went on hold, which was absolutely devastating and traumatising to a lot of trans young people. I think something it's hard for non-trans people to understand is the emotional devastation that puberty can have on trans trans young people. So it was really horrific for a lot of young people at that time. It then went back to the courts and has since been overruled, although that was less reported, interestingly, because of the media culture was that we talked about earlier. But that ruling has been overruled and the Tavistock now can continue with their services. Although, in honesty, I'm actually not sure what the state of that is today because I've been a bit out of touch on that front. Thanks so much for explaining that, Nim. Yeah, I mean, as you say, it sounds like a landmark case that has so much significance. And I, 
We have like a ton more questions on the healthcare section, but we do need to move on, but which is a shame because I wanted to pick up the point that you made there about puberty, but hopefully another time. I want to step back a little bit for now and pick up on something that felt really important um, that you said in an interview this summer, which was a distinction between fighting for trans rights and fighting for trans liberation. So could you explain to us what the difference is between these two ideas and, and why it's important? Yeah, absolutely. Something to say is that this is, um, I'll talk about this in the context of trans rights and trans liberation, but it's true of most rights and liberation movements, which is that trans rights identifies the cause of trans people's subjugation as a lack of civil and legal rights. And so that lack of civil and legal rights prevents us from gaining power and representation in the existing system. Trans liberation, on the other hand, identifies the cause of trans people's subjugation as inherent to that very system. So we're not experiencing transphobia because the system is broken. We're experiencing transphobia because the system is working as it was designed. An example of that to come back to her is Caitlyn Jenner. So in a trans rights movement, electing trans public officials is seen as good. We get more representation. There's more trans voices feeding into decisions made that affect our day-to-day lives. But as we noted before... (laughs) with her immense wealth and with that comes her political position which is that she's very republican you know even trumpian i would say and has explicitly argued against things like trans women's access to sport that is not a good end goal for us and we might look at preeti patel for example and think about whether or not representation in our pursuit of civil rights for any community is the meaningful end goal or if it's actually a bit of a misnomer not to say that it can't be helpful and useful at times yeah I mean I've got lots to say about the um the issue of representation and the whole idea that you know having a seat at the table is enough but just to stay with this conversation if if trans rights you know applies to some concrete changes in the law and things which as we've said are necessary I guess, yeah, should we abandon those fights completely or is it something that has to coexist? And what would what would the fight for trans rights and the fight for trans liberation coexisting look like? Great question. And I think this is like this is where I get really excited, as you know. <laughs> yeah. uh, because I think this is where we have to start thinking about like the pragmatism of our politics. I think on the one hand, like I said, trans rights can end up just being a representative dead end that doesn't really change the material conditions for the most of us. And at the other end, the trans liberation politics can also just become a bit abstract. It can become a bit holier than now. And it can really kind of not really change that much if we're just committed to bringing down structures in the abstract. And so they absolutely have to coexist. And the thing is, even if we don't want them to coexist, they do, because there are people out there in our movements who are doing work on both of them all the time. So even if we don't like that work, it is affecting us and our lives in the movements anyway. I think that there is a way to marry both and it involves being more strategic and a bit smarter about our approach. And so a parallel here is the abolition movement for me, which is where I look to for thinking through some of this stuff, which is that abolition in itself is, is a goal. It's a tangible thing that people that we're striving to achieve. And in the meantime, there's an acknowledgement that we have to make instrumental steps towards that. So last summer, lots of people will remember the slogan defund the police becoming really big, which was an instrumentalization of a lot much longer term abolitionist goal. The framework that I use to think about when is my trans rights work linking up with my trans liberation position is this idea that comes out of the abolition movement again, which is that is this a reformist reform? or an abolitionist reform. And I'll explain what that means. So a reformist reform is something that tries to reform the system and implicitly re-supports it. An example of that, let me just think of one, would be more funding for the gender identity clinics. So gender identity clinics in their current structure, like we said, have a like the legacy that they come from isn't one that supports trans people to live our fullest lives. It isn't built on informed consent. There is a crisis in them, the waiting lists are two to five years. We could argue that the solution is give them more funding. That to me is not a useful solution. It's a reformist reform, which reinforces a healthcare system not designed to support trans people, although it will in the short term make our lives a bit easier, potentially. An abolitionist reform is a reform that changes the current system and moves power away from it. So an example of an abolitionist reform in this sense, would be 
to fund more community models of trans healthcare. There's some of this is in process at the moment. There are three new gender clinics in the UK that have set up in the last year or so that have trans staff and are based in more informed consent models. They're not perfect, but they're a move in the right direction. What we might do next is have a demand of uh, more community-led responses and think about how do we utilise some of the money available into community-led, trans-community-led healthcare for trans people. We also might think about how we move some of the decisions about trans healthcare alongside better training and understanding into GP surgery so that we don't have to access specialist services to access some of these uh, the things that we need that don't need to be specialised. Another example would be the Gender Recognition Act reform. If we were to move the process of legally changing gender towards one of self-identity, it removes the state's control of our self-determination away from the state. So although that can look a bit like a reformist reform, you know, one of the things about that that most listeners might not know is that most trans people don't bother doing that process. We don't bother changing our legal gender because actually in civil society, we can change our, you know, you can change your gender with your bank. You can even change it on your passport without getting a gender recognition certificate. And so the lengthy, expensive, emotionally arduous, sometimes traumatising process of applying through the GRA for a gender recognition certificate means that trans people don't do it. If we were able to move to a system of self-identity, it would take out the state's involvement in our lives. So that would be another example of a potential abolitionist reform. So holding this distinction in mind then between rights and liberation, this Gender Recognition Act has come up quite a lot of times in this conversation, but I'm aware that we haven't actually unpacked it. So I was hoping maybe you could just quickly explain actually what the GRA is and what your involvement has been in campaigning around it, because I know that you've been super active. Yeah, for sure. So the GRA, I'm gonna the Gender Recognition Act is the GRA, so I'll call it the GRA from here on in, is the act in English and Welsh law that allows you to legally change your gender. So what that means in practice is you apply for something through that law for something called a gender recognition certificate, which enables you to change your birth certificate. This was won for by trans activists. They you know, went through lengthy processes to get this established in the early 2000s. And it's been in law since 2004, 2005. That law has existed pretty uncontentiously with most people for the last 15 plus years. At the time, there weren't many other examples globally of legal processes for changing gender. Since that time, many more governments have established legal processes, much simpler processes, and I'll explain what I mean by that. And as I said, civil society has moved on so much that it's become a bit redundant for most trans people. We can change our passports, our banks, our genders with our banks, our genders driving, like you can change your gender civilly in many other ways, away from having to get a gender recognition certificate. The process for obtaining a gender recognition certificate set up through that law, because there weren't many examples to draw from at the time, is incredibly arduous. It's very bureaucratic. It requires proving that you are trans by having things like medical statements, psychological assessments, proof that you've been living as trans for X number of years. There's kind of so many jumps to, to hoops to jump through that are intrusive, invasive, like I said, emotionally distressing at times, and so on. And uh, you then send that off to a panel. It isn't disclosed, so it's by all intents and purposes a kind of secret panel who decide, have you proven enough that you are trans? to receive your gender recognition certificate and you pay each time that you submit. So if they say no, you then have to compile all your evidence again and pay again to do that. And that the price tag on that previously was a lot. And as I said, uh, a few years ago, the government, in recognition that this was both a bureaucratic process and also quite a traumatising process for trans people, opened up a reform, uh, uh, sorry, a consultation to seek advice from LGBT organisations and so on, on how to reform it in the best possible way. What they expected was to find ways forward that match many other governments' approaches to gender recognition that have happened since 2004-2005 around self-identification, such as Canada, Ireland, 
in many other places around the world. But what happened was a huge backlash and the establishment of groups like Women's Place UK set up to not actually only block any reform to the Act and its impact on trans people, but to really open up this public national conversation about whether trans people should be able to change gender at all. Because most of the population don't know that that's been possible for 15 years. And that really laid the foundations for where we are today in public discourse and the culture wars about the very existence of trans people in society. Thanks, Nim. So would you say that this work was about rights or liberation? And if it was the former, was it still worth engaging? And how does this fit in with all the stuff that we were just talking about? Yeah, totally. So when it first, I'm going to be really honest and frank, which is that when it all first kicked off, I and I think many others were like, we don't we don't really care about this. It doesn't have a big impact on our lives. I can't remember the stat now off the top of my head, but it's 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 really minimal. It, it was something. Uh, this might be wrong, but I remember it being something absurd, like twelve people a year apply for a gender recognition certificate under this act. So the number of people in the community that actually use it is really really small. That figure might not be exactly accurate, but it is something that is just shocking and and, and kind of you're just like, why all of this fuss for, for something like this? And then what happened, like I said, is this huge rhetorical backlash against trans people. And all of a sudden, a kind of question about trans people's existence was everywhere in the press. Like I said earlier, it was, you know, people were being invited in to have debates in the public arena. And suddenly one of the worst parts of this was there was this idea that women's rights and trans rights are in some sort of conflict and not that you know some women are trans and that this is all about our united and shared fight against patriarchy and so on and so forth and so I think slowly a lot of us were like something is happening and it's and it's starting to really affect our material experiences of the world it's blocking our access into spaces like the domestic violence services or even our organizing spaces and political spaces. And so initially, I think my engagement in this was actually a bit reactive to that. Um, it was, we have to do something. <laughs> um, and at the time, our allies with the best intentions, you know, the Stonewalls and amnesties, etc., were trying to stand up for us, but they were building on an understanding of messaging that came out of the gay marriage debate it was like used and utilised in a very different moment in time. So at the point that, for example, in gay marriage, they were using the love is love phrase. They were able to do that because of the groundswell of the acceptance of gay people, gay relationships, etc. So you could use a polarising statement like love is love and it moved people because enough groundwork had been done in the grassroots across the country for that to be compelling. The slogans that they came out with at this point in time were things like trans rights are human rights and trans lives are not up for debate. They misjudged, in my opinion, the lay of the land at that point in time. And actually what that did, I think, is reinforce the need for debate. It was kind of like trans lives are not up for debate, but all these women are saying, this is the perception, all these women are saying there is a debate. And so I don't understand why you're saying there's no debate. And it wasn't that helpful. And so in that moment, I think I was acting from a kind of reactiveness. And when I slowed down to think about it, coming back to my point before, I think there is a kind of, this is a vehicle for liberationary politics through a rights agenda. So there are definitely people involved in GRA campaigning who have a trans rights agenda, who have a trans rights frame, for whom it is purely about rights and representation. And for me, it was much more about both that thing I mentioned before of abolitionist reform and the idea of removing power from the state to determine who I am or what my body isn't able to access or do and removing the state's power to control my identity or my bodily autonomy and in that sense it was very much connected to a liberation framework but also beyond that it became about something much bigger than it was it really became about who trans people are our access to material services coming back full circle to the beginning of this conversation about things like access to healthcare, to housing to education to safety to domestic violence support, to understandings of the violence that we face from the state and so on and so forth, such that it's something that I would not dedicate my life to campaigning on, but I would dedicate a good couple of years of my life in this conversation that became much more about who we are and whether we have a right to safety and justice and bodily autonomy or not. The outcome of all of this, for anybody who, who didn't hear about all of this, is that when Boris Johnson's government came in 
and Liz Truss became the Minister for Equalities and Women, that she basically shelved the whole thing, gave a small concession in reducing the cost of the application of the GRC process, but didn't really change anything else. To a lot of trans people, that was a real kick in the teeth. I think it felt like a huge loss to a lot of regular trans people. And what was interesting was that I think to me and other people who'd been active in the campaign, it felt like a win because it felt like the stakes were much higher than the reform itself in terms of uh, a trans-liberationary perspective and what was at stake for us in a much greater space. And I say it was a win because things weren't rolled back and the mobilisation behind the campaign to literally roll back our rights at that point was so huge that it did seem possible. And indeed, the Times had leaked policy proposals earlier in the summer last year from the trust office that they were thinking about doing all sorts of all sorts of really regressive things um that would roll back our our rights and so I think it's always a, a tussle between the two I think at times I had to stop and pause and think am I getting too drawn into the rights agenda right now or am I actually still on course for the thing that I think I'm doing here and I had to stop and reflect and really think about that and think about changes of strategies. I don't know if I always got it right, but that's how I think it kind of, in my work, I was trying to marry the two, which is get people to support, to fill out the reform. I didn't actually say the instrumental thing, getting people to fill out the yeah. consultation. Um, we made a portal that made, the consultation itself was like a 27 question government consultation, which if anybody's ever looked at one, they are dry and confusing. And, you know, I like to think of myself as, relatively intelligent and I could barely make sense of it even though I knew lots of the legal implications of it and so we made a portal that reduced it to the three or four most critical questions and put them into plain English and uh, I think we've got like 8,000 people to fill it in in three days or something and then did a lot of work around the messaging and comms around all of that to try and shift us away from what we should be seeking here is rights and what we should be seeking here is removal of state intrusion into our bodily autonomy and I think we see a parallel in that in some of the current conversation around whether or not there should be a third gender option on passports or whether we should get rid of the gender option at all. Mm, I mean if only everyone was as uh, reflective and strategic as you Nim I think it's, <laughs> it's uh, yeah I mean the, <laughs> the way that you took us through that journey is like a real testament to what a deep practice that you have around this stuff and I think the movement is very lucky to have you. And that's not me just kissing your butt. I really believe it. I think we're going to have to leave it there, unfortunately, because we are out of time. But there's so much more that I would like to unpack on this. But I just want to give you a really heartfelt thanks for taking us through all of that. I think when it's hard enough coming to talk about a movement that, you know, isn't in your in your bones. But I think, yeah, coming and bringing like such insight and openness and vulnerability is just a real gift to to us and the listeners um and as i said the movement so thank you so much for being with us nim it's been a pleasure thanks for having me on always great to chat with you brilliant uh lovely listeners that is the end of this week's weekly economics podcast but nim ralph if people want to find out more about your work where can they go what should they read how can they find you uh they can find me on twitter at at n-m-r-l-p-h okay lovely that is it for today's weekly economics podcast but we'll be back soon with more if you've enjoyed this episode please tell someone about it as always you can drop us a line with your comments and questions we're at nef on twitter the weekly economics podcast is brought to you by the new economics foundation produced by becky malone and researched by margaret welsh i'm still aisha thomas smith stay safe